start with theme as a writer. You know, maybe you have a vibe, but like then you let go of it and just tell a story. And then you look back when you're done and go, okay, what was I actually saying here? What what happened? But uh, memory is a huge one. The fallibility of memory, the way we question our memories. The passage of time is another. Of course, it's related to memory. But this question of You know, are we the same people that we were 25 years ago? Well, something in the core is the same. Those memories are there, but we've changed so much. And if I've changed so much, that means everyone else has changed so much. And if everyone else has changed so much, how do I hold them accountable for the ways they hurt me back then? Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to a very special episode of the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block podcast. This week, we are so honored to be talking with Rebecca Mackay, author of the just-released powerhouse novel, I Have Some Questions for You. Not only was this book on almost every much-anticipated list that you can think of, but it's already earned starred reviews from Library Journal, Publishers Weekly, Booklist, and Bookpage. I am Ron Block. And I'm Meg Walker. The book has also garnered high praise from Pulitzer Prize-winning author Andrew Sean Greer, saying, I've been waiting years for a book like this, unputdownable and unforgettable. Mackay has written the book of the season. Rebecca Mackay's last novel, The Great Believers, one of Ron and my favorite books in recent years, was a finalist for both the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award. It was the winner of the ALA Carnegie Medal, the Stonewall Book Award, the Clark Prize, and the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, and it was chosen as one of the 10 best books of 2018 by the New York Times. Rebecca's other books are the novels The Borrower and The Hundred Year House, and the story collection Music for Wartime, four stories from which appeared in the Best American Short Stories. A 2022 Guggenheim Fellow, Rebecca is on the MFA faculties at the University of Nevada, Reno at Lake Tahoe, and Northwestern University and is Artistic Director for Story Studio Chicago. Rebecca, we can't tell you what a privilege it is to talk with you today about this powerful and thought-provoking new book. Welcome to Friends in Fiction. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Wow. <laughs> That's a long list. Sure <laughs> what a slacker. <laughs> I know. Yes. <laughs> okay. So what we like to begin our interviews by asking our guests to give us an overview of their work. So give us like the elevator pitch of the book, but then we'd like to dig a little deeper and find out from you what you think the book is really about. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, the kind of tongue in cheek, but not really thing I've been saying is it's a literary feminist boarding school murder mystery. <laughs> All of that is true. That's uh, um, true. Yeah. But the basic thing is um, we have a woman, uh, a 40 year old woman named Bodie Kane, who is a film historian. And she goes back just for two weeks to teach 
at the Granby School, which is the boarding school she attended as a very adrift teenager. And while she's there, she starts, of course, thinking back on her own time, which was in the 90s, and starts to realize that the death of her junior year roommate, their senior year, it was a murder that was solved. There's someone in prison for it. And she starts to realize that some of the people on the internet who've been saying that the wrong guy is in prison might be correct. And the book goes from there. That's awesome. So what are some of the underlying themes that you are trying to tell the reader? Yeah, I mean, the themes, you know, you certainly don't start with theme as a writer, you know, maybe you have a vibe, but like, then you let go of it and just tell a story. And then you look back when you're done and go, okay, what was I actually saying here? What yes. what happened? But uh, memory is a huge one. The fallibility of memory, the way we question our memories. The passage of time is another, of course, it's related to memory. But this question of You know, are we the same people that we were 25 years ago? Well, something in the core is the same. Those memories are there, but we've changed so much. And if I've changed so much, that means everyone else has changed so much. And if everyone else has changed so much, how do I hold them accountable for the ways they hurt me back then that made me who I am? (laughs) That's a big one here. We also get into more sociological themes, wrongful incarceration, the uh, the the rigging of the criminal justice system, perfunctory police investigations, all those things, and there are a lot. There's a lot of stuff going on, you know, in the way that Bodie, you know, what Bodie's looking back on is a lot of rape culture, sexism, silencing that went on, especially in the 1990s. But of course, we're not through with today. Yeah, I mean, I love that the book operates on several levels, like on on its surface, as you mentioned, it's a murder mystery and it's a whodunit, but it's also a social commentary uh, and a critique of our tendency to forget that, you know, quote unquote, true crime victims are actually very real people, as well as a critique of the way our society seems to fetishize these victims and turn them into Mm -hmm. objects for our own entertainment, particularly when they happen to be young, pretty white girls. So tell us a little more about why you wanted to explore that phenomenon, particularly in this book. Yeah. You know, it's so it's funny because what I'm writing is, of course, fictional crime, but it takes as its topic true crime and that that kind of true crime industrial complex (laughs) that we have. Right. Which is, of course, nothing new. You know, I'm always reminding people like they they literally sold souvenirs outside the Lindbergh baby murder trial. Like, this is, right, podcasts are new, Reddit threads are new, right? But we all grew up, I grew up on America's Most Wanted, and Unsolved Mysteries, and Dateline. (laughs) We have this fascination. And the project here was to go, okay, like, let's look. Let's take one of these cases, the kind of case that would just be custom made for everyone to eat it up, right? Young, white, pretty, wealthy girl at a boarding school that... Let's take that case then and let's actually look at it through a realist lens. Let's look at what that attention would do to the family, to the witnesses, to the investigators. Let's look at, you know, the the actual nature of a police investigation. Uh, let's look at the underbelly of so much of the justice system and so many of the stories we consume, which is wrongful incarceration, which disproportionately affects Black men. So we're going to go to all of those places 
it's sort of like, it's sort of like you get what you wished for. Like you wanted a story like this. Okay. Let me really, really tell right. you a story like this. Right. I mean, to me, like as a writer, it seems like a super fine line to walk, right? Like you pull it off brilliantly, right. but I, I wonder if you had to make a conscious effort while writing the book to, to not become the very thing you were commentating on. You know right. I mean? I mean, and I think sometimes it does because it is also a murder mystery. We have a, a dead body at the beginning and by the end we know who did it and why. Right. So, you know, it's, it's doing both. It's, you're saying it's like, it's walking a line. It's walk. It's like, it's kind of walking like five lines yeah. at the same time. <laughs> totally. Um, <laughs> so yeah, you know, no, but of course it gave me fits, right. There's, there are any novel that you write, there's going to be at least one just cosmic impossibility at the heart of it. And one of the cosmic impossibilities at the heart of this book was, well, how do I critique the thing that I'm doing? Or, you know, am I falling into this trap? Am I, uh, but can I, can I be in the trap and also critique the trap? Or am I outside of the trap? <laughs> you work yourself in the trap. Am I caught in the trap? <laughs> right. A am I the trap? <laughs> I'm the trap. Oh my God. <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, that's what, you know, revisions are for. That's what readers, early readers are for to go, ah, you need to steer away from this. Giving, you know, for instance, this this man Omar Evans, this character who is in prison, um, had you know has been in prison for for over twenty years. How do I tell a story that is you know? It, it, I'm not the right person to tell the story of what it's like inside this, the New Hampshire State Prison for Men. That is that is you know, and and like that that's not going to be my book. But how do I? tell a story that involves this guy and involves this guy being sidelined and this guy not being listened to. How do I tell a story that doesn't sideline him again? How do I work his experience in there when I'm not the right person to tell what it's like for a black man in oh, prison in New Hampshire? Yeah. So that's another, another piece that's all related to that. And you find these solutions as you go. Oh, I, I won't that. get into spoilers there, but but I found a way to work in what his experience yeah. was. No, you did it beautifully. Yes, you yeah. did. Very nicely. What, how did you decide to tell the story the way you did tell it? Because it was all basically a narration from Bodhi to a specific person telling that person yeah. a story. How did that come about? Right. So it's funny because it, it is a first person story, right? But it's also second person in that it's right. there's a you that's listening to all of this. You know, I think it. I'm one of those people, and I, it, sometimes I say this and people get it right away, and sometimes I get very strange looks, but I'm someone who very often feels like they're, I, I'm just narrating my day to someone. Um, <laughs> the example that most people understand is like, let's say you you went back and walked around the neighborhood of your deceased grandparents, and you're thinking about them, you would kind of feel like you were in conversation with them. You'd feel like they were watching. You'd be thinking stuff at them, right? Right. And for for some of us, that happens more often than just that, those like moments of of someone departed. It just you know, if you revisit your old school, do you feel like there's a certain person watching you or that you're in conversation with? And she gets back to this school. And she's not quite sure why at first, but there is some, turns out there is something subconscious gnawing at her, but she gets back there and really the person that she keeps thinking of, the person that she imagines herself in conversation with is her, uh, and this is not too much of a spoiler because we learned this very early, is her music teacher. 
who she has not been in touch with for a long time, but was very important in her life. And then she starts to realize that there there might have been some really problematic things about this person. The funny thing is, I don't remember making the decision to do this second person. I've been thinking about the novel for like a couple for years, um, which is usually the way it is with me. And then by the time I sat down to type to actually write, I was at the Ragdale Foundation near Chicago, artist residency, and I had three full weeks to work on this thing. And I was in just a fog, a wonderful creative fog. I wrote a lot of stuff. Some of it made it into the book. Some of it didn't. And somewhere in that time, I decided to do the second person (laughs) thing. And I have no memory of it. (laughs) Um, That's awesome. And that leads right into talking about memory. I know you mentioned a little bit earlier, but there's so much of the book. And I have to say, as a reader, and it also happened with The Great Believers for me, is your writing was just so so realistic and, and it triggered a lot of things in my own memory and made me think. Mm. But that's exactly the experience of your characters in the book too. There was repressed memory. There was uh, collective memory. Can you talk just talk about the power of memory in your work? Yes. You know, this isn't the other cause. The other cosmic impossibility at the heart of this book was the problem of memory. So what I I did not want to jump back and forth in time, if only because the great believers did that. And I didn't want to just be in that same mode again. And I also did not want to do the thing that kind of drives me nuts in fiction, where someone is like, you know, frying an egg And they have a memory. And the memory is 16 pages of completely chronological, detailed information (laughs) of what happened 20 years ago. And it's like, yes, the sky looked like this that day. And I scratched my left earlobe. And what? Not how memory works, right? Not how how it works, right? I think it's something we borrow from film. I don't think that... um, Mm. I don't think that literature used to do this nearly as much before we got used to that filmic convention of zero in on a character's face, the screen goes blurry, we got a little harp music, and we're in the past, right? I just didn't want to do that. And so how am I going to then, how do I solve this problem of letting you know what happened in the 1990s if I can't take you there and memory doesn't work that way? So... You know, my my solution so often to these cosmic impossibilities is to write about them rather than try to write, rather than try to solve it, write my way around it. It's like that, you guys know the the going on a bear hunt song that you sing to little kids? Can't go over it, can't go under it. Oh no, we have to go through it. So that's what I do, right? So then it's going to be about memory. Like she's going to doubt her memories. She's going to revisit her memories, you know, rewrite her memories, go, wait a second, maybe it happened this way. Other people are going to remember things very differently than she did. We're going to get the memories in blips. If we get something specific, we're going to have to know why she remembers it. Like there's a point where she says, I remember what Thalia said. I remember her wording because she never swore. And this time she swore. Like there's a reason, right? At least that she thinks, and maybe she's still wrong. You don't know. But it was fun to work that way. It was really interesting to think about my own memories, which are you know, not the ones in this book. This is not my life. But why do I remember what I remember? And then the things that come up where you know, you've know you completely forgotten. Someone else remembers something and you're like, 
what? We we went where on a field trip? What? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like if yeah. you sit around with a group of old friends and you each are talking about the same experience, oh, but you yeah. remember it completely differently, like it, completely. we're all unreliable narrators, I guess, right? Of our own lives. <laughs> and we had uh, lots Very of gray areas. <laughs> yeah. And then what are we but the sum of our memories, right? right? As as a as a being. But and yet some of it's made up. Those memories yeah. are yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's always one in the crowd, though. I like. I have a friend who, like, you can get together 30, 40, 50 years later, and they'll be like, oh, yeah, don't you remember we did this? You were wearing a yellow shirt. We were in exactly. the front. <laughs> we were in the red. Like, how do you know yeah. that? <laughs> yeah. And Bodhi kind of is that character, right? She is, out of everyone, you know, as 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 wobbly as her memories can be, she was somewhat, she was an observer, in high school. She was yes. someone who really, she thinks of herself, she collected information about people. She she tried to notice everything. It mattered greatly to her because she did not have a stable home life. This was it. And so she she is that person. And yet even so. And there's so much, it's not just memory, but things she just misunderstood. Things she missed, things she didn't get at the time. Huh. Yes. Well, I'd love to talk a little bit about the journey to publication for this new book. I have some questions for you. Because as we mentioned in your intro, your previous novel, you know, was a finalist for the Pulitzer, the National Book Award, like, you know, such a smash breakout success for you. So I'm curious if you felt pressure coming off such a critical success last time Mm -hmm. and how you dealt with that as a writer and, and how your publishing process might have been different this time around following such a breakout. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I wouldn't say pressure. I felt I came to terms early with the fact that, like, you know, all of my books are very different from each yes. other. Um, I don't mm-hmm. work in a certain mode. That, I mean, it's, it's all me. It all sounds like me, but they're very different stories. And I I knew, okay, this is the story I'm writing. There are going to be people who wanted me. I'd been joking, like they wanted me to write too great to believe with like the number two, <laughs> like the, the franchise. Right? <laughs> Or like another really, another tragedy, you know, another just like really, you know, tissue heavy (laughs) book and that that's not what I'm doing. And there are people who aren't going to like that and I can't worry about them, right? They can find something else. They they should go, they should read other stuff about AIDS. They should read other stuff about, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, what I write, right. Other, the other things that are out there. So mostly Honestly, I, I felt this as kind of validation and license. Oh, I love that answer. That's oh, great. Good. I, yeah, you worry, especially as a woman, you really worry about being taken seriously. And my, you know, my first two novels, there were some reviews that did take them seriously. And there were others that were like, kind of a pat on the head, like, isn't this cute? <laughs> and like, just, you know, it's, it's frustrating. And now, you know, the risk I'm taking, I'm writing a book. It's not YA, but it is about boarding school. It's a, it's a murder mystery. It's, it's all these elements that I would have worried would lead me to not, would, would lead people to not take this book seriously. But because I was being taken seriously already, it made it that much easier to just go, okay, I, I can write this thing. People will, they'll take it for what it is. Maybe not everyone will take me seriously, but if they see my bio, they're going to read the book in a certain way. They're not going to go in assuming I wrote some cute 
half YA thing that isn't it, that that would be a great book, but it's not what I'm writing, right? So so yeah, I, I think it just it was that was that was huge. And then and then in terms of publication, the other interesting thing here is that this, the Great Believers was a slow burn. It never hit the New York Times bestseller list, although it has sold very, very well consistently since it came out, which is five years ago. It sold very well during COVID because people saw parallels there. Mm. They were in lockdown. They wanted to, you know, they were talking about pandemics, epidemics. Mm. And so the, although, you know, it never kind of spiked in this huge way, it found a lot of readers slowly. And publication wise, what's different is like, you know, I have all of those readers now at once, right. <laughs> at least the ones who liked, I mean, if they read the rare believers and they didn't like it, then no, whatever, but <laughs> the ones who liked it, like they're all right. Like booksellers are aware, um, book bloggers, podcasters, et cetera, readers, all those people that we kind of collected over the past five years are here at the beginning for this book. And so that's, that's made a very different kind of publication. I, we, they printed a lot more books that's this time. Um, my tour is a lot longer, things like that. Good. So, yeah. Yes. I saw in social media too, how many you signed at Penguin Random House. Like, whoa. <laughs> I signed 3000 books in New York. Wow. Yeah. The, yeah, it's a lot of first edition book clubs. So there are bookstores that basically kind of do a book of the month club for their customers who pay ahead and then they get a signed first edition that then they sometimes do a book club around. And there were a, a bunch of bookstores that, that did that, that chose this for their first edition club. Oh, so I, I signed 3000 books and I'm, you know, they're all like, Oh my God, are you okay? I'm so sorry. Your hands tied. I'm like, oh, this is great. Are you kidding? <laughs> like, if, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. If, uh, oh my God. This is the I'd easy part. This, <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. It's a lot easier than actually literally writing the sure. book. So, <laughs> you know? So podcasting, of course, is a, is a big part of this book. And if you think back, Serial was the, really the first thing that put podcasting on the map. Yes. It was. Can you talk about how podcasts maybe have changed the face of storytelling and what led you yeah. to explore it in the book? Yeah, right. So, yeah, it, it is funny. I think Serial, it's it's not just like that it was the first true crime podcast. It was like when we all found the podcast icon on our right. phones, exactly. right? right? How does this work? <laughs> and Right, exactly. I, I don't love everything about the way that particular podcast handled that case, but I I was deeply invested in that case mm-hmm. and thrilled that, that Adnan Sayed is out of prison. There is an intimacy, of course, right, to podcasting where um, it really just feels like someone to, speaking directly to you and telling you a story that that's that's wonderful. And it can be, you know, I love history podcasts. I love, you know, anything educational I love just learning stuff from podcasts. It, it just does feel like th- this incredibly attainable, like it, it's, a, you know, in a small capsule of a story or of information, you can listen while you're folding your clothes. True crime, you know, nothing new, right? But the podcast right. is a medium that I think is particularly suited for that kind of storytelling. It's something that within this book, it's it's funny. I think I think that there have been um, a bunch of books in the past five years or so that have used podcasting. I think maybe more maybe more commercial books than literary books. 
you know, mystery mysteries, um, capital M mysteries that have used podcasting. But, you know, I started writing this book five years ago. I hadn't, you know, I wasn't, it's not like I was trying to be the first person to do that, but I hadn't seen stuff out there like that. And it felt like if I'm going to tell a real, a very realist story about this kind of case, podcasting, Reddit boards, Twitter, those things all need to be part of it because that's really how these things, you know, you're talking about a case that, that completely captures the public imagination. This is what happens to them. This is how they get disseminated. Yeah. So let's talk about your research because there had to be for you um, as the, as the writer, like for Brody in the book, an unbelievable amount of um, crawling down rabbit holes to research the book. So in addition to podcasts, you also cover cancel culture and our obsession with true crime, as we've talked about, and you also tackle systemic racism and wrongful incarceration. So mm-hmm. did you have to do any particular research to get all of those things right? Mm. Yeah. Boarding schools, no, <laughs> because I know that I, I, I live on campus at the boarding school where my husband teaches. I know this world really, really well. But yes, the New Hampshire legal system, the New Hampshire carceral system, those were the big ones. The um, I was so fortunate that someone hooked me up with this woman who was working as a, uh, was until very recently a public defender in New Hampshire and was willing to Zoom with me and read pages and give me just all kinds of incredibly helpful information about the way these things really work. Because I didn't want the Perry Mason version you know, I I didn't want to misrepresent, not, not only you don't want the lawyers rolling their eyes at what you wrote. Right. right? But I don't want to misrepresent the impossibility of getting a retrial. You know, I'm talking to this woman about, you know, how hard is it to get a retrial for murder or whatever in the state of New Hampshire? And she's like, well, we got there once in like the state, like there's been one thing that came to retrial in the state of New Hampshire. She was the one who did it, but in the past like hundred years or something like that, you know, these things, you can have actual DNA evidence that someone else did it. And that person is still not getting out of prison, despite what TV is going to tell you. It'll take three decades to get them out. If they, if you eventually do get them out and then you ruin somebody's life. You know, it's, it's insane. It's mm-hmm. crazy. Right. Yeah. Oh, you're 65. You're free yeah. now. Have fun. <laughs> like, what? Okay. Yeah. Enjoy. Yeah. Enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. But um, so that was a ton of research. And then there were things like rowing crew. I've never rowed crew. I'm a, I'm a kayaker, but I've never rowed crew. So I had, you know, a couple people I needed to grill. I had the hardest time because it's like what seat you sit in, they're numbered right. and who's behind who and which direction it's going. It's like, this it's is all its own. It's like this? its own language too, rowing crew. Like everything has a yes, weird yeah. name. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so yeah, little things like that. Emergency medicine comes into the mm. book. I, I needed a little, you know, help on that. Um, sometimes it, it's very often reaching out and interviewing someone, but sometimes it is something like speaking of Reddit, going on Reddit boards where people are talking about life in prison and maybe asking your own questions. But just, you know, a lot of these things have already been asked. People saying like, you know, uh, what was the hardest adjustment for you to life in prison? And and all these people who've been incarcerated answering those questions from personal experience. So. Um, you know, the, the research isn't always someone that I end up being able to thank in the back of the book, but, you know, it's the glorious age of the internet. So often a lot of it is out there <laughs> yeah. already. 
That's great. Um, so you mentioned um, boarding schools. I know that boarding schools have, are, have been a big part of your life, but yeah. also that you worked really hard to not connect any of your own experience or memories or people in the book. Talk about that process. Did you have to tread carefully? Do people still come up to you and go like, hey, that's me? <laughs> well, I mean, the book's only been out for like five days now, so we'll see. <laughs> um, I, I don't think people not necessarily have, have gotten through it yet. You know, I, I'm very careful in the author's note, among other things, to be like, hey, it should be really clear that Bodhi, if you knew me in high school, Bodhi is not me. And I hope it's equally clear that no one else is you. But, you know, people love to see themselves, no matter what you do, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, people are like, oh, I told you that, I don't know if I, I ever told you that I have an aunt Marjorie and you named a character Marjorie. Was that about my aunt? <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> so the, the school that I know is here in Chicago. The, this, this is where things get complicated. The, the school where my husband teaches, where I live, is also the school that long before he was here, I attended as a day uh-huh. student. So I live gotcha. at my high school. Okay. Which is not, I'm definitely not the first person to do that. A lot of people who teach, in fact, at boarding schools are alumni of that same school or of another boarding school. So this is not a completely unique situation. I don't teach here. I just live here, which is, which is a little different, but I needed to make sure that this was different in every way. One of the reasons that the, the teacher who's kind of central to this story is a male music teacher is the only music teacher at my high school was a woman. And so I can go, okay, like, because if I'd made it a male history teacher, well, there were male history teachers. If I'd made it the male drug, well, the only drama teacher was a man. But if I make it the music teacher, no one's going to think that that was Ms. Bine, who was awesome. Like, so I just have to go in every possible opposite direction. Setting it in New Hampshire, when the school that I know is in Chicago, was a big one too. Okay, it's a ski school. <laughs> like, we don't got those in Chicago. <laughs> um, so it, it was it was fun, right, to, to do that all. Well, you you touched on the um, the point of view earlier. I just want to go back to that just a little bit because it struck me as so it's, it's such a a big part of a big part of the experience of reading this novel. Um, so it's, the book is written in the first person which automatically makes it a very personal, intimate reading experience, almost uncomfortably so at times. Mm -hmm. Because the reader, you just can't distance yourself. But then you do this thing that you mentioned before, you take it a step further and um, turn the lens on the reader and you address us directly. And it starts even with the title of the book, which is addressed at us too. So talk a little bit about why you chose to break down that wall. And because the first time I read right. the, the one sentence that was like, and you, and I was like, who me? I look, I look, I was like, wait, what she's talking to me. <laughs> like, I, am I the murderer? Right. Am I complicit? And I, I guess that's, you know, yeah. um, we're all right. complicit that's, in the story mm-hmm. because we are gobbling it up or, or I don't know. You tell it. You tell us yep. why you did that. That's you got it. You nailed it. That's pretty much it. You know, this this there there is an assigned person for the you. She's talking to this one guy, but you know, that that is also, yes, you the reader, or you know, I'm the book is casting you in the role of this guy, or or not. And yeah. or <laughs> right, right, right. And and or we're all complicit. You know, she she ends up blaming everybody. Um, she blames herself. She blames the school. She blames 
faculty, she blames everyone for, for the death of Thalia Keith. And it's, yeah, I, I, I do. I do want the reader to feel implicated by taking part in this kind of thing. I'm not saying, hey, it's bad to be interested in mystery right, or, right. It's, you know, how dare you pay attention to true crime? It's just, hey, we're all part of this. Yeah, it, you, you don't get off the hook. It's a little bit of a trip. It's a trip as a reader. And that's what Bodhi's realizing too. Yeah, you just feel, yeah. You feel part of it. Bodhi's realizing, you know, she, she's realizing that as much of, of an outsider as she felt like, she was a part of this school. She was a part of this rape culture. She was a part of the institution of whiteness. She's part of all of these things, whether she wants to be or not, that, um, that do damage. And she's part of the true crime industrial complex (laughs) and she's, and, and we are, you know, we're part of, you know, many of these same systems. So it's, it's not like you're going to read this book and feel bad about yourself. It's just, that right well. I'm not getting off the hook here. I think it elicits memories in us of things that we maybe can think we might have done differently in our past. I think for it sure, triggered that's sure. part of what I was talking about with the triggering. It's like, ooh, I should not have done this. Like there was um I think there's somebody who you you joined in calling somebody a name or something that you realize now mm-hmm. was very hurtful. Mm-hmm. Was very hurtful yes. for them. And it, yeah, right. That's the thing. Because she, yeah, she took part in stuff. So in the book, I, I I marked up a lot in my <laughs> copy. But the one thing that kept I kept coming back to is this one social media post that Bodhi writes, and she says, "Are we talking about the feminism of empowerment or the feminism of victimhood?" To, for me, that was really really powerful to bring up and to talk about. But I want to talk about it a little bit because it ties in with your exploration of the Me Too movement throughout the book. Mm-hmm. It, it, it looks at the harassment, degradation, misogyny that women and girls face in academic and work settings. Why did mm-hmm. you feel it was important to fold that into the narrative? Yeah, I mean, basically, I'm writing this book in 2019, and I'm writing about 2018. This was what was yeah. on all of our minds, as, as it continues to yeah. be. Right. Yes. There's this this excavation that went on, right? It was like, you know, these big things like Harvey Weinstein and whatever. And then what it was kind of the the worms coming out after the rain, like, whoa, look at all this stuff that we <laughs> that came out, including very little things, including, you know, just um hallway harassment in middle school, whatever, right? Yes, yes. That really, really gets to people and wasn't okay. And um, we're not equating it with Harvey Weinstein, but it's still a thing. And then things get complicated where there are situations like the um, the story about Aziz Ansari, where a lot of people went, oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. That's not what we're talking about. It's not the same thing. Yeah. I, I don't know. Did that cross? It, that like, whole story like really bothered me too. Bad date, but yeah, yeah it was a bad yeah. date. And was does it does he come off like a great guy? Yeah. No, but should we crucify him? Try to ruin his career over it? No, also, you know, uh, right. And it, it felt too way too voyeuristic. Like I, I, I don't know why any of us need these details about anyone else's horrible date. <laughs> you know, Me Too became a license right, to like right. share every bad memory you ever had and. And right, you know, it, it, it right. I don't know, to me, it had the effect of like, you know, are you if you're equating that with Harvey Weinstein or Bill Cosby, like it, it makes it all seem mm-hmm. dumb and we shouldn't do that. But 
Anyway, that's exactly. And then we get people going, oh, cancel culture, cancel right. culture. And it's like, well, no, like Matt Lauer needs to literally be canceled. Totally. Like, yes, um, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so th- that those contradictions and the book is not coming down with any thesis statement on this. But no. I have in here, you know, the whole spectrum. Someone was murdered on the one end. In the middle is like this guy who thought it was really funny to sexually harass Bodhi throughout high school. And on the other end, we have, you know, these things coming out. It's, you know, I, I don't think this is too much of a spoiler, but about Bodhi's ex-husband on Twitter, where she at least is going, well, I don't get it. Like what? So you didn't, you had a bad, like you had a, you didn't get along. So you broke up. Why do you need to cancel my husband over this? You know, some readers might agree with, with the woman who's, you know, would, would say, yeah, no, that's, that's bad stuff. I, you know, but for Bodhi, that is on the the like this isn't a thing end of the spectrum it's all in there and i need it to be i don't want this book to be like you know making one statement yeah. i need it to contradict itself i need it to be in the tar pit you know just getting mucky yeah it's nothing but all gray areas right i mean it's not like you can set right. out to solve <laughs> um, me too and cancel culture and everything and because it's all murky Right. And of course, some of it is not a gray area, but, but so much, right. But so much of it is, and we don't, it's hard on something, you know, someplace like Twitter, it's hard to get into that gray area. It's much more, you know, you got to make a statement. You got to, you got to be pro or con. You got to say. Engage in a flame war. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Right. And we just don't have a lot of space for nuance. Right. Let's say, yeah, I think nuance would be a better a better term than gray area because gray area makes it sound like whoa, you know. But but nuance, yeah. But, but that the thing is, that's what fiction can do. Fiction, you know, you have a three hundred, four hundred page novel, you have room for nuance. Yeah. So I recently read your um, New York Times book review by the book interview, and you were asked what moves you most in a work of literature, and you responded the joy and tragedy of the passage of time. And it stopped me in my tracks because I hadn't really thought about it in those terms, like while reading and loving your work, but that is absolutely the feeling you get from reading um, both The Great Believers and I Have Some Questions for You. So I'd love to hear more about what that means to you and, and what did you mean by yeah. that statement and, and how do you how do you attempt to capture something like that on the page? Yeah, that is almost always thematically what I end up writing about. You know, in The Great Believers, um, it's about the long arm of guilt or grief, survivor's guilt, looking back, looking at the empty spaces where people should be when you survived and they didn't. In this case, it's about, you know, are we the same people that we were? How do you keep track? You know, if you are the sum of your memories and your memories are faulty, who are you? Right. And, you know, how can we look back? How can we look back from the present on something so distant, but so foundational, so important for us? It's uh, it's just, it, you know, I think other than my very first novel, The Borrower, um, which was pretty linear, and it, even then the narrator's looking back from a few years on, but my second novel, The Hundred Year House, is told in, in reverse. It's told backwards over the 20th century. A lot of my short stories deal with time. I think it's just kind of the big metaphysical theme of my work. That's wonderful. Oh my God. Like I said earlier, we could do this for 17 hours. (laughs) (laughs) I still have more questions I want to ask you, but we'll, we'll have to do a part two. Maybe we do. Yeah. 
I do want to encourage everybody to follow Rebecca. Um, there's some really wonderful things she does where her work with Story Studio, her teaching, and something really kind of cool is this uh, project she's taken on to read trans books in translation. I, I find yeah. that very fascinating. And even I'll, I'll plug her Substack. So oh, where else can hey. people connect with you online and, and find out about tours and projects and things? Yeah. Well, my website is RebeccaMackay.com. It's R-E-B-E-C-C-A-M-A-K-K-A-I. That's also my handle on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram because nice to have an unusual name yeah. pays off. And then my Substack is called SubMack, S-U-B-M-A-K-K. But I think you can search my name too. And I, I love connecting with readers. I love connecting with, with fellow writers, aspiring writers, writers in progress everyone. So yeah, I hope people will find me. You do. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. This has been such oh, a yeah. pleasure for us and we're such fans and I, I can't wait for people to read this book. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening to this episode. We are so proud of the storytellers we get to bring to you each week. Don't forget to buy Rebecca's book at our friends in fiction bookshop.org site and help our beloved indie bookstores. Please tune in again next week and be sure to bring a friend along with you. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends in Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.